Whether we realize it when they happen or when we look back on them, there are moments in our life that can change everything. For Scott Vaughn, he's had a few of those moments. One was when his father died. And he passed away December 12th of 2014. Yeah, so my last year in the SEC was 2017. This will be the sixth season that I'll, I'll be off the field. Yeah. This is the Ton Report. I'm your host, Ton Trung. This week on the podcast, I'm going to tell you about Scott's journey from working as an official in college football games to helping survivors of sex and human trafficking. We'll also be hearing from a survivor. How their lives intersected is remarkable, and you'll understand why later in the story. A heads up, though, there will be mentions of drugs, sexual abuse, and violence. It may be triggering for some people, so discretion is advised. Let's get back to Scott. To fully appreciate where he is now and what he's doing for survivors, we need to go back to the 1990s, before being a football official was on his radar. My dad was an NFL referee for 25 years and refereed Super Bowls 20, 25, and 29. Actually, his first one right here in New Orleans in 1986 with the Bears and the Patriots. So probably a lot of us have seen him on TV. Absolutely, absolutely. Through all those years, absolutely. I think he figured it up one time, and he's worked over 465 NFL football games you know, throughout his career. Wow. But it was interesting, a long time ago, I, was, I went to Barcelona, Spain with him when the NFL was trying to promote NFL football in, in over, the, over the pond, as they call it. You know? So I am actually in the hotel bar room having a conversation with the lead singer of Sting and having a cocktail, and Dad's in a pregame meeting, and he comes into the bar to get me. And I'm like, I wish we'd had camera phones, you know, back then in social media, because I could have been taking a bunch of pictures. But he said, I need you to come with me in the pregame meeting. And I'm like, what, do you really? I mean, I'm sitting here having a conversation with, you know, somebody you just don't have a conversation with any day. So lo and behold, I went. And the NFL did not send over a clock operator to run the game clock for that game between the Steelers and the 49ers. So dad volunteered my services. So my excitement of being in Barcelona, Spain with my dad very quickly went to fear, <laughs> especially when they handed me a 90-page manual on the clock, or pro, uh, clock operations for an NFL football game. So I read that manual front, back, backwards and forward, top to bottom, over and over again, pretty much all night. And when we went to the game the next day and I ran the game clock and then after we got back here into the States, I thought, you know what, I might want to get into officiating. Wait, how'd you do on, on the clock I operation? did great. There wasn't any problems. I didn't have any mess-ups. and I was, But I tell you, I was, I was scared to death the whole time. You know, it's not really something you pay that much attention to when you're watching a football game is the operation of the clock. But they do on the field. You know, every second's got to be accounted for. But hell, if you got a, like a binder or a manual on how to run the clock, then there's, there's some serious stuff to pay attention exactly. to. Exactly. It's not just flipping a switch off and on. <laughs> it's not. After that trip to Spain, Scott set his sights on becoming a football official, a back judge to be specific, the same position his father worked on game days. He was really excited about me doing that, you know, and, and I had the, the best teacher in the world because he would actually come stand out on the field with me for high school scrimmage games and little league scrimmage games, and he could talk me through the process of what my mechanics were, what my keys were, what receiver and what offensive person that I was supposed to be focused on and who I was and who my my keys were as we call them and then when the offensive formation changes well then my keys change but to have him standing behind me talking to me that whole time because I worked the same position that he did which is back judge located in the defensive secondary 
about 25 yards from the line of scrimmage. So I didn't, I didn't have any bad habits to break, which is really where I'm going with this. Cause you know, a lot of people get into it and they kind of fly by the seat of their pants, learning how to do it. And then when they finally get to someone that can teach them, they've got a lot of bad habits to break, but I didn't have any to break. I've learned from the best from the get go. Scott and, says he never got pressure from his dad to pursue officiating, but when he did get into it, they bonded over it. Not that they needed to. We already had a great relationship, but the football even made that connection even even tighter. With his dad's guidance, Scott kept climbing. You know, I worked my college conference I got into was the Southland Conference, and then from there, Conference USA, and then from there, the Big 12, and then I was happy in the Big 12. I liked being in that Power 5 conference, but my dad wanted me to go to the SEC because I didn't know at the time. I knew my grandfather had officiated football, but I didn't know that he officiated in the SEC. And I knew my dad officiated in the SEC before he got to the NFL. So dad wanted me to be the only third generation SEC football official in the world. So that's why I ended up going to the SEC. And you delivered on that. Absolutely. Down here in Louisiana, SEC football is a big deal. And that's a huge understatement. But for Scott, who was raised in the small town of Ponchatoula, SEC football was a family tradition. His grandfather, his dad, and then Scott all graduated from Mississippi State University. And as he heard him say, each of them went on to become a football official in the SEC. It pretty much consumed a good chunk of Scott's adult life. The best part of it, he says, was sharing the experience with his father. Because I'd spoke to him before and after every game for 21 years, or he was either there with me. And then when, when he passed away and I didn't have that the last three years I worked in the SEC, then I just kind of lost the love for it. Why did you, why do you think you lost the love for it? I didn't have him to communicate with about things, you know, before and after the game. And even sometimes at halftime, when I was, when we'd go in the locker room, I'd grab my phone to call him, you know, to ask him a question. Okay, did you see that? Or what would you think? You know, what'd you think about this play at, you know, in the first quarter at 12.02? Without his father as a constant in his life and career as a football official, Scott says all the travel, time away from family and home, it didn't seem worth it anymore. He was ready for a change. That was in 2014. Around that time, a woman who I'm calling Donna to protect her identity was just starting a new life in Louisiana. I've been anywhere from Rockford, Dayton, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin. So you're a Midwest girl? Yes. So how'd you make it down here? Well, let me just tell you. (laughs) A man. (laughs) A man did it. I was with uh, my youngest daughter for uh, his father for like seven years he he was born in baton rouge family was in baton like baton rouge area um and i was we were actually living in wisconsin i was milking cows for a living and uh he i mil- gotta say i don't really come across a lot of people that tell me they used let to me milk tell cows you really- for a living. <laughs> it's it, it's an interesting job let me just tell you that donna was coming off a divorce with the father of her first daughter that daughter stayed behind in the midwest so how would you describe life at that point when you made the move? It was exciting, you know, at one point. And then it got interesting as time went on. What was exciting for you? Um, the change? The, the change. The, you know, you hear the, you, when you hear about the South, you're thinking New Orleans. That's the first thing you think, New Orleans, Bourbon Street. <laughs> Well, we got that. Until I ended up on Bourbon Street one day, <laughs> just visiting. Don't know how I got there with my three-month-old daughter. And I was like, whoa, yeah, no, off Bourbon Street we go, you know. But um, Did it meet your 
kind of did it, you meet your expectations or were you let down? Well, I was shell shocked. Okay. <laughs> Most things back home in the Midwest is pretty closed doors, and then out there it's wide open. I was like, all right, okay. Sure, the hell is. <laughs> so, um, but it was more the you know the southern hospitality, um, the way that you know people are just united down here, and um, of course the food. You know, um, it was just a little bit of all kinds of different things as to why I really like started to really like love the South. You initially said it was exciting, and then you mentioned that it got interesting, but it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like you had a bit of trepidation when you were saying it got interesting. Like what, what um, it was It was particularly just the relationship that just changed. And, um, yeah, that's just when things kind of shifted, and then it wasn't fun anymore. I was with him for like seven years. You know, when when you find out you're you're pregnant and you're thinking you're starting a family and I guess those expectations of what you think it's supposed to be or what it looks like. But here I am with the person that I've expecting this and from. Um, and then it turns out that he turns to a full-fledged addict. Quick. So I'm a stay-at-home mom, you know, taking care of our daughter, dealing with a lot on top of living with his family, who, it was just very toxic. The environment became very toxic on, from the family and, and him, and I'm just like, it was just too much. And on top of him using that, yes. that was all, all kind it of was, crammed in yes. under one roof. Absolutely. Point. And being that, you know, I believe that people can change. Um, and I, I held on very long for seven years. I just didn't want to rip my daughter away from her father, hoping for change. And just things just didn't change, so I had to make a decision. And I finally made the decision that it was time to separate, and I, and I did so. Donna eventually moved to Mississippi. So I was a security officer for a major casino. Um, single mom, just got like this cute little cottage... It felt freeing, you know, I felt like, yeah, I could do this. There was no craziness and drama and fighting and all this nonsense. It was just peaceful. And then life changed again, but this time about 20 times worse. Involving a, another relationship into the equation, a person that I met, way worse. It, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, and this individual, ended up having a worse addiction than the last gentleman that I was with. And an addiction I'd never seen in my life. And this was an IV user to methamphetamines. And that type of addiction brings out a whole, I would say, a devil side to a person. Donna began using drugs too. There was a history of it in her family. I never touched a hard drug until like my late 30s. And because it was there, it was accessible. And just to know, like, well, how does this happen? My mom was an addict. I lost my mom to addiction in 2008. Um, and just having it around you and it's always available, then you just subject yourself to it. You know, um, and I'm doing it daily. You know, and um, that's where I struggled. I didn't know if I was an addict or was I a recreational user because of how easy it was for me, because it wasn't there anymore. 
even still now, you know, like there's people that are in recovery that still struggle that struggle with it and they have that urge and that I don't have that. I think I mostly just did it because it was there. Donna says the man she was with was not only abusing drugs, but also abusing her. She felt like she was in a tailspin. When COVID happened, um, I was furloughed from the casino. And um, my house got sold from my landlord. They did not tell me that they sold my house. Until the new owner came in and were like, hey, we bought the house. I was like, we weren't aware of this. And um, they gave us an opportunity to try to find housing during that time. But being because of COVID, um, they had it where, you know, you couldn't evict people out. And in um, pretty much every place is like at capacity with residents. So it was really hard to find anything at that time. Yeah, nobody was moving. Right. There was no movement. That's how I became homeless with a child and with this individual. Um, I was actually living in a, a shell of a camper on a car lot, running extension cords to this camper and going up to a gas station and getting water to be able to bathe with a child. Um, a lot of the abuse that took place was behind doors. She didn't see. That would change. He began to start displaying some of the abuse to where she was kind of picking up on it to the point of um, he was about to attack me in front of her. And I grabbed her and I'm running down a highway with her and seeking help and hiding in a car on a car lot until help came. And I had to make a choice. And my choice was to leave her with her grandmother and her grandfather and her father because I knew that individual was going to be coming and looking for me. In which case he had a whole ser- he had like the whole town searching for me. He had me plastered on Facebook looking for me. I just didn't feel like where I was was safe because I knew he'd be coming and looking for me there. So I had to um, leave my daughter with her father. And then I left. What was going on in your mind at that point? Because that's got to be a heartbreaking decision because you want your daughter to be safe. But as a mom, I can't imagine you want to be separated from her. No. I just didn't want her to see some a lot of the things that I've been hiding for two years because it was just getting to the point I could no longer hide it and it wasn't safe anymore it was unpredictable and that was the hardest thing I had to do <clears throat> was to leave her and I didn't know if I was going to live or die at this point because of how bad it was I mean, I was getting hit with baseball bats, the billy clubs. Um, individual put uh, fire fluid on my body, tried to set me on fire, maced me, and hit me in the bed, uh, back of the head with the butt of an axe. I mean, a lot of things. You know, it was just, I, was, I, di- I didn't know if I was going to live or die. Beatings upon beatings upon beatings upon beatings. What kept you going? I mean, how do you survive that? Nothing but God. Only Him. Only Him. In 2020, 
Scott Vaughn was in his fourth year as the CEO of First Down Healthcare and Aesthetics. Having a degree and occupational experience in physical therapy, Scott opened the business in Metairie in 2016. The name of the office was a tribute to his late father and grandpa and the sport they all loved. On the walls at the clinic, you'll see pictures of Scott and his father in those black and white striped uniforms that football officials wear. They're old school snapshots of classic games, a throwback to a time when people still read the newspaper, and who was on the cover at Sports Illustrated magazine mattered. There's one picture of Scott posing with then-President George H.W. Bush, who, according to Scott, remembered him from a previous time they met. He said at that game, President Bush asked him how things were in Ponchatoula, which made him think that the former president had a great memory or a really good staff which kept him informed on the people he was going to meet in his role as leader of the free world. Either way, it was memorable for Scott. Back to First Down Healthcare, though. Initially, the clinic was focused on helping people in their healing process. It was something that Scott had a lot of experience with. And I've worked here in the greater New Orleans area for well over 20 years, you know, providing services for patients that have been involved in motor vehicle accidents and any type of other work-related injury. And I decided in 2019 that I wanted to get into the aesthetics business. So started purchasing different lasers, doing Botox and dermal fillers and cool sculpting and all those types of things. In 2020, Scott bought one particular laser that, to maximize the sports theme that we've got going on, was a game changer. And it just so happened that one of the lasers that I purchased in November of 2020 did tattoo removal. But it's crazy because that's not why I purchased the device. I purchased it because of the amazing results of the before and after pictures I saw with the laser facials, with getting rid of sun damage, dark spots, kind of skin rejuvenation, knowing that, yeah, it does tattoo removal, but that'll just be lanyap. Lanyap, by the way, is a word we use down here. It means extra or an added bonus. When I did my first tattoo removal in January of 2021, when the patient came back six weeks later to get a follow-up treatment, I was totally blown away at the amount of ink that was removed from that tattoo in that one treatment. So I immediately began to think there's got to be something that I can do to give back to the community and to give back to society using this technology. So I started looking at a program that's referred to as Jail to Jobs, where ex-cons coming out of prison need to have tattoos removed from their hands, their neck, and their face that will help them get back into the workforce, into the work environment. And I brought in a friend of mine because I wanted her to be the CEO of whatever nonprofit that we started, because she was a go-getter. Her name's Courtney Lewis. And we started doing some research on doing the tattoo removal for ex-cons. Well, during that time, she went to a medical conference for her job. She works for, for Aetna. And there was a survivor that spoke at that conference. When you talk about survivor, you explain survivor. A, a, a sex trafficking survivor. Yes. And she was moved by it. And she, after that conference, came back and told me about it. And we started doing the research. And I knew about sex trafficking, human and sex trafficking. But I never knew that they were branded by their pimp or trafficker to claim ownership. You know, to show which pimp or trafficker owns that person. And when I started doing the research on it, then it, it really moved me. So then we started talking to different organizations like Empower 225, New Orleans Mission, the Eden House, and presented the technology that we have and what we can do 
for some of the people that they're taking care of. And when I explained to the board members what we could do, it got very emotional. <laughs> got emotional for them and it, it got emotional for me as well. Because as they explained to me, they provide all these other healthcare services for these sex trafficking survivors, whether it be psychology, other doctor visits, other, uh, you know, just anything you can think of from, from clothing to housing to a roof over their head, education, just the whole rehabilitation process. But no one has ever offered to do the tattoo removal, which amazed me in itself. You know, why are we the only ones that are offering to do this? It's kind of strange to think that a laser designed to be in the world of Botox and beauty is providing some kind of deep meaning to life. But that's exactly what it did for Scott. Totally did not intend to turn out that way when I purchased the device, but I have no doubt that this is the road that God has led me down. And I've always been very fond of a quote by Mark Twain that says the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you figure out why. And for the first time in my life, I truly believe that I figured out why. And it's to do the tattoo removal from sex trafficking survivors and to create the nonprofit that we did named Unbranded. Since Unbranded got its start just one year ago, its small team has helped more than 30 survivors get rid of trauma tattoos. Scott told me about one survivor who had her name prominently tattooed on her so authorities could begin the process of identification in the event her body would be found somewhere. You know, when you talk about quote unquote prostitutes, and sex workers. Society has one, often one idea, one concept of what that is. What has this experience in working with survivors taught you about who these women are, who these people are in sex trafficking, in the sex working world? Mm -hmm. Well, they're strong women, I'll tell you that. You know, to endure what they've been through, it shows their strength and it shows their courage, and it shows that, that they're fighters to be able to, to come out of that and to be progressively moving forward to better their lives and put themselves in a, in, a, in a better place, in a better situation. But I tell you, one of the things that's really made me think about a lot over the past few months is that, you know, most of us, you know, had a mom and dad, we had a roof overhead, clothes on our back, food on the table, you know, they, sent us to school, educated us, gave us a good foundation, gave us a foundation for roots to grow into. And, you know, people talk about that. Well, my mom and dad, they taught me good work ethic, good, you know, structure, discipline, teamwork. But no one has, I've never heard anyone say, and I've never even thought this, and I've never heard anybody say, but most importantly, they protected me. Never heard anybody say that, and I've never even thought of that. And I've always been very grateful and appreciative for the way that I was raised and the support staff that I had, not only from my mom and dad, but family members that just, you know, lived a, a few blocks away. But now I'm so appreciative and grateful for, you know what, they protected me too. They protected all of us. You mean physically protected? Physically protected us. Yeah, you know, to make sure nothing bad would happen, to make sure, because a lot of these a lot of these boys and girls that are sex trafficked, it started at a very young age and it started by a family member. You know, it started when they were three years old or four years old and started by a family member. I have a survivor here now that was sex trafficked by her father at the age of six. 
and then was under the control of, of the first pimp when she was 16. But from, you know, for the first 10 years, her father sex trafficked her. Where's, where's the protection there? See, that's where that thought process is, is coming from with me now is that I'm so grateful because I was protected. You had a wonderful relationship with your father. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to grasp, and I did too, and it's hard mm-hmm. to grasp and understand that someone else's father could yeah, how can you do that? put their child into sex trafficking. Exactly. You know? But the people that do that, they either have mental issues or substance abuse issues, and they're looking for a way to make money to be able to satisfy their addiction. But still, how can you use your own child to do that? How can you use any human being to do that, first of all? When you come across this laser, like, why did you take that extra step of saying, I want to help somebody with this? Because on the surface, like, when I see a laser, I'm not thinking, like, well, let's do some good with this laser. But, I mean, how did you get to that point? It's, it's just what spoke to me. You know, I, I truly believe that that's what God told me to do. And, and that's... I have no other explanation because I wonder all the time, how did I end up here? And it's crazy. I can go back. You know, I've given this so much thought. I can go back for the last 15 to 20 years of things that have happened in my life that I can connect the dots on that have led me right here to where I am. You know, if, if I wouldn't have decided to get into the aesthetics business and do something different, I would have never been led to here. You know, if I wouldn't have purchased that laser for the benefits that it that it can do for the face with the rejuvenation of the skin, I would have never purchased that laser because, like I said, I didn't buy it for the tattoo removal. That was the last thing on the list. You know, I just thought, you know what? Yeah, if I have somebody come in, I can do their tattoo removal, but it wasn't something I was going to go out and advertise. You, you know? know, it's interesting because when you say the aesthetics business, I think of something typically it's and I hate to use this term, people would think it's shallow. You're just worried about looks. Mm -hmm. But here you are in the aesthetics business, and, I mean, after helping these survivors, it sounds like you significantly changed and improved their life beyond just something superficial. Do you find that strange? I found it strange that I ended up here. I don't find it strange that it's changing their life, because it is. But I'm going to be honest with you, and I tell them this all the time, and I, I get so emotional talking to them about it is they're changing my life more than I'm changing theirs. It's been an emotional roller coaster, and to see the excitement on their faces and that they have something to look forward to and that they now realize that they have something on their body that we can get rid of that they thought that they were going to have to live with for the rest of their life and have that constant reminder of that physical and that emotional trauma that they endured for however many years they were under the control of a pimp or a trafficker. I mean, it's very, it's very self-satisfying and self-rewarding for me to know that, I mean, I'm actually changing people's lives. You know, I'm not just in a clinic trying to, to beautify people and make them feel better about themselves that, you know, they already pretty much feel better about themselves and they hadn't been sex trafficked. But here I am taking somebody that has endured more physical and mental trauma than I could even try to wrap my mind around and just making a huge difference in their life. I mean, that's just very satisfying and very rewarding to me. Can you describe some of the branding, some of the tattoos or markings that you've seen? 
Yeah, I see. I see brandings, tattoos of that pimp's name. I see dollar symbols. It could be on the side of the neck. I could see a, a name on the back of the neck. A common one is you'll see a pimp's initials behind a, a sex survivor's ear. I see them on the small of the back. I see them on the arm, on the shoulder. Um, I even have one that I completed the process now, but had the tattoo across her forehead. You know, which is, there again, something that, I, it's just hard to wrap your mind around that. You know, and, and, and that's a perfect example of, that person is going through the healing process and working with the organization that, 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 that was helping them. And you can go to a psychiatrist every day and feel like you made four or five steps forward. But then when you get home and look in the mirror, or anytime you look in the mirror and bam, there's that reminder just slapping you right in the face again. And now you take those five or six steps backwards that you just progressed on earlier that day. What was it like when you started performing the procedure on the first survivor that, that you worked with? I was scared to death. Why? I didn't know what to expect. I, um, you know, heard stories from the survivors, and I get emotional just talking about it right now. But dealing with something I've never dealt with before in my life, not knowing if a survivor, a sex trafficking survivor walks in this office, what may trigger them. You know, there were so many different thoughts going through my head, but I had an ace in the hole and didn't even know it. And it's the miniature long-haired Dotson I have. And I'm going to tell you what, Lucy, yes. I met her. Great. Yes. Great, yes. great girl. Yes, she is. But when the first two survivors walked through that door, and I was standing outside of my personal office door, and Lucy was sitting right by me, when they opened that door, she took off across the clinic and ran right up to them. And any fear that they had or nervousness they had was completely gone. It's like it just totally broke the ice. And they loved on her, and she loved on them. And I tell you, it changed everything in the blink of an eye. If I wouldn't have had her here, I don't know. It, I know everything would have been fine, and everything would have gone fine. But that was the ace in the hole that I had. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's awesome. I'm like, I'm full of anxiety and my nerves. I remember sitting there and here comes lucy and i think that kind of really helped when i saw her i'm, I'm like petting her and my nerves kind of calmed down a bit. she did the same for me when i walked oh, in the man. office but i wasn't in that yeah. situation for sure um, scott he made me feel comfortable we talked a little bit and then it was just like i'm like i'm committed i'm <laughs> ready to go and we started and i can't explain how it really you know people say well it feels like you know a tattoo times 20 I'm like well you know hold on because <laughs> I don't know how to explain it it's just it doesn't feel the greatest but it's worth it you know it's definitely that it's 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 worth it like the whole the whole process of this has just been a blessing and what Scott does for people before Donna had arrived at Unbranded's clinic in Metairie she'd endured years of abuse rock bottom wasn't just a description it was a destination I wanted it to end however it was going to end I was emotionally and physically d just defeated. It was just like, I was at this point, I was ready to die. I was so tired. Um, I'm homeless. I'm living in the woods. I'm living in a storage unit. She eventually got clean, got away from her abuser, 
and got help through different agencies like the New Orleans Mission. But she still carried tattoos of all the trauma. When you put a person's name on your body, you're pretty much saying, well, you own me. I can't even explain. <laughs> Feeling like you're nothing and that you're somebody's property and they have full control over you. I, w I was just very ashamed, embarrassed. I, I felt foolish and... It's just not a good feeling to have when you're standing in the mirror and you're seeing all these names on you that mean nothing. It was like, no, no one owns me. No one is ever going to have that control over me or dictate my life. At one shelter, she heard about a new nonprofit. There was some guy offering to remove tattoos for survivors. Donna reached out to a relative of the person running the shelter. And I remember sending her a text and said, please, <laughs> I need to meet this man. I have four or five different names that have been carrying on my body for 10 years, and I want them gone. <laughs> and she, she gave me his information, and I remember as soon as she sent me his information, I immediately texted him because <laughs> I was excited. After a couple of sessions with Scott, pieces of her old tattoos and the pain they represented are now fading away. When we started the process, I had this huge one <laughs> on my neck, and we we're both really excited about, and it was really dark. It was really huge. <laughs> oh, you're pointing to it now. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah it's almost completely gone. Wow. And um, I, I certainly can't make out what it is now. I mean, it just kind of looks excited. like a weird birthmark almost. Um, and then this one. Um, I'm, this one I knew was going to take a little bit longer, but I'm excited. And then this one, um, I was actually really excited because this one's not going to take too much to go, but... And I guess um, for the listeners, so you've pointed to your neck, to yep. your kind of shoulder mm -hmm. area, and now to my wrist. your left wrist. Yep, and I have a, oh, one across my back I don't know how to feel about yet, and that's... I'm worried that one's going to hurt. <laughs> But the wrist, that one, that one kind of got me pretty good. But the one on my neck is more exciting for me. Why? Because um, I felt like a billboard. <laughs> Through his work with Unbranded, Scott is leaving his own mark on the lives of victims. For that, Don is grateful. There's so much support in the world now and so much understanding that we have a lot of people like Scott that have these beautiful hearts that generally want to make a difference and I remember actually sitting in his office and I was looking, I was looking at the pictures and I was seeing as rough referee I'm like in my mind I'm like how do you go from referee <laughs> to this <laughs> that was one of my questions you know but it has a lot to do with the heart and probably just maybe stories that he's heard and he is a blessing I'm, I'm just truly grateful to be able to do this. And I'm sure other people that he's come across feel the same. According to the Polaris Project, which has been collecting data on human trafficking for the last two decades, there were more than 10,000 such cases in the U.S. in 2021. The number of people involved in those cases was above 16,000. Scott says he wants to grow unbranded to help as many survivors as possible. But that takes seed money. We need people to get involved and donate so that we can take this across the state. I mean, that laser costs $350,000. And 
that that's the expense now when we open another clinic there's two other places I want to go in the state of Louisiana. One is Lake Charles, because that's a hot spot with I-10 coming over from Texas. And the other is Shreveport, because that's a hot spot coming over I-20 from Texas. And it gives us the ability to be close enough to the Texas-Louisiana border to reach across into Texas and help some of those survivors that are in different organizations over there that may be located geographically in a close enough proximity to where we can have them transported over there and help them. But in order to do that, the big expense is, is the laser. If you want to learn more about how to help Unbranded's mission or to donate, head to their website, unbranded.org. Scott says he'd like to one day see Unbranded help survivors on a national scale because the issue of human trafficking is far bigger than most of us could imagine. Donna is going on two years of sobriety now. She's also been reunited with both her daughters. Although she still has the emotional scars of abuse, today she carries fewer visible ones. Thanks to Scott. In Metairie, I'm Tan Trung for WWL Radio.